who do you say Jesus Christ is? I see the good that he's done, but I see him more as like, um, like he was a real person, but I don't see him as kind of a, a god or anything. Messenger of God, son of God, yeah. From the culture I grew up, they say he's a prophet. Uh, so I think he should be probably, you know, you could learn a lot from him and, you know, be respected, something like that. Due to the natural non-divinity of normal people, I'm inclined to believe he was not divine. I think Jesus is who they say he is. He died on the cross for us. He did everything he could to shed his blood for us to live right. That's a good question. I mean, I was raised Catholic, but I actually haven't given it a lot of serious thought in a long time. So it might be something I have to think about. Yeah. Well, as I watched that video, I had a thought that maybe some of you had, which is very simply, people have a lot of opinions about Jesus. And uh, as I watched it earlier this week and then again this morning, it occurred to me that often we like to take the parts of Jesus that we appreciate and keep those and then try to get rid of the parts of Jesus we don't like. So I was thinking about the young woman who said, "Uh, look, I think that he had some good things to say but I don't really like or believe that he is God or anything like that. Or the young man who says, I believe he's a prophet, so he should be respected, but not necessarily that he is God. All of us, I think, on some level or another, do that. Whether consciously or not, we read the scripture, and there may be things about Jesus, either that Jesus did or said, that make us uncomfortable. And so we may not consciously cross it out of our Bibles or, uh, or tear it out or say that's not true, but we just ignore it, right? We don't memorize those verses that make us uncomfortable and quote them to our friends. We all have a tendency to want to pick and choose those things that we prefer to believe. Uh, in a lot of ways, we in our culture approach truth claims a lot like my family approaches chocolate. All right, and here's what I mean. Uh, every year at Christmas, my mom gives us bags of chocolate that look almost exactly like this. This is Ghirardelli. These are these squares of chocolate, and it's an assortment, right? There's dark chocolate with raspberry, dark chocolate with mint, milk chocolate with caramel, and then just plain dark chocolate in the bag. Every year, we get it, and here's what happens. By New Year's Eve, usually, most of them are gone, with one exception, and that is the mint ones. For some reason... Nobody in my family eats them. So we pick around them. We choose the ones that we like. We eat those first and we leave the mint ones. And every year I think maybe somebody else will eat those. I offer them to my kids and my wife and they always turn them down. And uh, still to this day, there are some of those mint ones from Christmas sitting in my cabinet right now. So some of you are thinking, I like those. Let me know. I'll bring them to you next week. That is the way we approach chocolate and Typically, that's okay, right? It's our right as Americans to choose which chocolates we want to eat and which ones we don't. A lot of issues in our lives are like that, whether you like rock or country or lanes or canes, even if lanes is the right answer, right? You have the right to have the opinion that you have, and a lot of issues are like that. They're issues of preference. Uh, There are other issues in our lives that are not issues of preference, right? You don't get to determine which taxes you want to pay next week. Uh, You will pay your taxes or you will get in trouble. 
Uh, You don't get to decide which side of the road you're going to drive on heading home from church this morning. You will drive on the right side of the road or you will get a ticket or get injured, right? There are some things we recognize that are one way. When it comes to Jesus, the scripture tells us we don't really have the option of deciding which parts of Jesus we like and rejecting the rest. Uh, In that respect, it's a lot like getting married, right? When we get married, we don't have the option of choosing which parts of our spouse we're going to kick to the curb and which parts we will stay with. So my wife, Shannon, does not have the option of saying, you know what, the lazy parts of you, they need to leave, okay? the unkind parts or whatever. When she agreed to marry me, she agreed to marry me, all of me, something for which I thank God for every day, right? Because now she's in, no matter what, okay? So the reality is that when we approach certain issues in our life, we recognize we've got to take it all or nothing. We don't have the option to pick and choose. The scripture says that is the case with Jesus. Now, that is a deeply unpopular viewpoint in a pluralistic culture. We live in a culture where the prevailing attitude is that everything in life we ought to be able to determine according to our preferences. Right, So a pluralistic culture is one in which there are competing views about morality and about religion, and everybody has a different idea of what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. And because it is a pluralistic culture, it's also a relativistic culture that says what is good for you is good for you, but others don't have to accept it. So the idea of objective reality when it comes to morality or religion. That idea is very unpopular in a pluralistic culture. In fact, I had a rather animated discussion a couple of months ago with a young woman who was arguing that stealing, in many cases, is morally permissible. Her argument was that uh, whether one steals or not, or should steal or not, is totally relative to the circumstances in which they find themselves. Right, my answer would be, no, stealing is always wrong. Now, there may be mitigating factors that determine the consequences for stealing in one situation versus another situation. Right, how much you steal, from whom you steal, what were the circumstances that drove one to steal. But the scripture would say, no, it's always wrong because we are always called upon to trust God to meet all of our needs. So stealing is always objectively wrong. In the area of morality, our culture has a hard time with that, especially when it comes to issues like sexuality. Our culture also has a hard time with objective reality when it comes to religion. And so the claim we're going to look at this morning from John 14 is not a popular one in our culture because Jesus makes a claim of exclusivity. Jesus says very clearly in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No other religion on the planet is a valid path to get to God. I read a survey, a 2008 Pew survey uh, this week in which they discovered that 75% of Americans would say that there are multiple pathways to God. In other words, 75% of those in our country would say you can reach God through a variety of religious paths. Now that might or might not shock you, 
What might shock you is that among evangelical, self-identified evangelical Christians who say they attend a church, a church regularly, the number was 57% of evangelical Christians actually say there are multiple paths to eternal life, that you can find a way to God in a variety of religions. But as we look at Jesus' words, he's going to say that he is the exclusive way to God the Father. That all who want to have eternal life, all who want to know the Father, have to go through Jesus. There is no other way. You cannot approach God the Father through the beliefs of any other religion. You cannot say, even though uh, I am sincere in my Muslim faith, in my Buddhist faith, in my Hindu faith, in my atheist faith, that I can approach God through all of these different pathways and said, Jesus says, I am the only way. Now, the good news is this, that God is always calling men and women to himself. So God has open arms and is always saying, everybody is invited into God's house. But Jesus is the only road to get there. And as we walk through the passage, we'll see that the gospel itself Proclaiming the gospel is not a means of condemning those who believe differently, but instead a means of offering good news that God has made a way to know him in Jesus Christ and everybody is invited to him through Jesus. So what we'll see in John 14 is this. Everybody is invited to God's house. Jesus will use the metaphor of a house right up front in this passage. Everybody is invited to God's house, but Jesus is the only way to get there. And what that will call us to do then, as we recognize Jesus is the only way, is to take seriously the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, to teach what Jesus taught, because this ought to transform the way we understand not only Jesus, but our relationships with the men and women around us in our lives, particularly those men and women who do not know him. When we come to terms with the reality that Jesus is the only way, it ought to motivate and compel us to pray for men and women who need to know him and to proclaim the gospel with our words and with our lives. If we believe Jesus is the only way, then the reality is if we've trusted Jesus Christ, we carry the best news in the universe of how men and women can come to him to receive eternal life. So everybody's invited to God's house, but Jesus is the only way to get there. Look with me at John chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. I'll read from uh, verses 1 through 3 as we begin. John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. All right, so right away, Jesus makes this case that God uh, has a home for his people. God has a home for all of his people. He starts out this chapter with these words, do not let your hearts be troubled or agitated or stirred up. And And the natural question, of course, is why would their hearts be troubled? Why would the disciples have been troubled? Well, we find the answer to that back in chapter 13. Back in chapter 13, Jesus had just told them, I'm about to go away. And they said, well, where are you going? 
And Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you can't follow me right now, but you're going to follow me later. And Peter, in a characteristic burst of verbal loyalty, says, I will follow you anywhere. I'm ready to die for you right now. And Jesus looks at him and says, will you die for me? Because before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And I imagine in the gap, in the momentary gap between chapter 13 and 14, Peter's face is downcast and troubled, as are the rest of the disciples. Where is he going? Why are they troubled? Because they have a case of separation anxiety. Those of you who have small children have experienced the phenomenon of separation anxiety, right? Moms, when you leave the room, your toddler immediately begins to panic. Where'd mom go? Is mom going to come back? They start to cry because to them, you have left the universe when you leave the room. You no longer exist. Some of you have probably seen this meme going around uh, for a while. Bathroom break, they will find you, right? Uh, You go to take that break and there's that little hand. Where are you? Are you coming back? Have you left me behind? That is how the disciples are feeling. Where's Jesus going? Is he going to come back? And so Jesus begins the passage by saying, look, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me. In my father's house, he says, there's many rooms. If if that wasn't true, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and get you and receive you. To myself. The idea is that Jesus is reassuring them by saying, I'm not going away forever, but God has a home for his people and I'm going to get it ready and I will bring you back in. And I love the imagery. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. The idea is of a very large building and lots of smaller dwelling places. Think of a large apartment building where Hundreds or thousands or even millions of people can live. And Jesus says there's many rooms. And the idea is there is space enough for everybody in God's house. Nobody will get to the gate of heaven and say, you know what? We are full. There is no vacancy. We just ran out of room and materials. I'm sorry. There's room for everybody. And the good news is that God is constantly calling people toward himself through creation through our conscience, through the word of God, through the history of the church, through the reality of the risen Savior and the Holy Spirit. God is always saying, everybody come to me. So that in 1 Timothy 2, Paul will say it this way. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so God, although he does not force, will always call and always make the truth known. And God doesn't discriminate on the basis of where you were born, on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of gender, on the basis of socioeconomic status. All men and women are allowed to come to God through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It is an open invitation for all who would trust in Jesus Christ to come to him. And so God's invitation extends to everybody. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to make a place. How did he make a place? Ultimately, it would be through his death on our behalf and his resurrection. He died in our place to pay the penalty for our violations of God's law, for our sin, and he rose again 
so we can have eternal life with God. Jesus says, that's where I'm headed, to accomplish the work necessary, to make a pathway for you to be reconciled to God. God has a home for his people that is big enough for everybody. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. God has a home for his people. But Jesus will go on to say this. Jesus is the only way to get there. Look at verses 4 through 11 with me. It says, And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. All right, Thomas asks what is really a pretty good question here. Thomas, in the history of the church, kind of gets a bad rap for being doubting Thomas. But as you read through the Gospels, he has some pretty good questions, and he is deeply loyal to Jesus. And Thomas says, look, you're telling us, Jesus, that we know the way. And Thomas says, uh, we don't know the way, because we don't even know where you're going. We don't have the address. You're saying, follow me, how do we get there? All of us have felt that sense of disorientation at certain times in our lives because you may have experienced somebody saying to you, look, we're going to go downtown. I want you to get in your car and you follow me. And you think, if I follow you, I will not get there, right? Uh, Because you will either get lost or you will go too fast. That's my father, actually. He goes so fast, it's like following Dale Earnhardt through the streets of Houston, and he will invariably lose me. And so when he says, follow me, I say, Dad, just give me the address, and I will put it in my phone, and then I know where I'm going, and I can find the way. That's what Thomas says. He says, Jesus, we don't want you to lose us. You're saying, trust me, and I'll get you there. Uh, We don't know where you're going. What is the way? And Jesus' response is, I am the way, the truth and the life. In other words, Jesus' response is, Thomas, trust me, and I will get you there. If you want to get to the Father, the way is through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the living, embodied truth of God. That's why John says Jesus is the Word of God. When God speaks most powerfully, it is in the person of Jesus. Jesus represents all that God wants for us. Jesus represents what God is saying about how we can know him. And he says, I am the life. When we looked at the resurrection and the life a couple of weeks ago, what we see Jesus saying is this, if you want eternal life and you want to know the truth about how to receive eternal life, I'm the way to get there. So trust in me. And ultimately, this will be a call for those who want to achieve eternal life, to reach the Father. You believe in what Jesus has done. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is making here a bold claim to exclusivity. 
What Jesus is saying is that uh, there is only one true path to eternal life, and that path is found in him, and only those who trust in him can get there. Any other religion that denies what Jesus is saying, the scripture says, is a lie. Look at what John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. One of the things we saw in that video at the beginning is this, that different faith systems actually have different beliefs about who Jesus is. And no other belief system says Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is the only way to eternal life whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or any other faith system, all deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And John says very clearly, then then that is a lie. And the reality is that uh, we can hold a belief sincerely and deeply and really still be wrong. Now again, the good news is God is calling men and women everywhere to know him. But there's only one path to get there. I read a story this week about a man named Mike Lewis, uh, who is currently now known as Wrong Way Mike. And here's why. Uh, Because in 1985, Mike Lewis boarded an airplane in London, uh, and he was trying to get back to his home in Oakland, California. He flew from London to L.A., and then he was supposed to pick up a connection to fly the short distance home to Oakland from there. Uh, But when he landed in L.A., here's what happened is he got confused because there were two groups on the plane. One group was going to Oakland, and another group was going to Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, he got off the plane, and they said, if you're going to Auckland, right? And they kind of spoke with an English accent, and he thought they said Oakland. So he followed the group going to Auckland. And he sat in the lounge, and he waited there for a while, and then he boarded the plane, not going to Oakland, but going to Auckland. And he didn't realize until he'd been on the plane for a couple of hours that he was headed back across the ocean to New Zealand, So they flew him back the next day, and this was uh, such a big story. He ended up getting offered a movie deal and all of these different things because people were fascinated by how could a person be so wrong and yet so certain that he was right? And he even had all kinds of explanations. Well, they didn't say uh, Auckland or Oakland as clearly as they should have, and I was tired and I was jet-lagged and they should have helped me, and he had all of these excuses. But the bottom line is, no matter how sincerely he believed he was going to Oakland, he still found himself in New Zealand. You can be absolutely convinced that you are on the right path and be wrong. And here's what the scripture tells us in Romans 1. That God has provided enough information for men and women to respond to him. Through creation, we can see some of his character, that he is eternal and divine. In our conscience, we can understand God's standards And those who respond positively to that revelation, God gives them more and more. And we see that in the book of Acts, even with men like Cornelius or the Ethiopian man who respond to the revelation they are given. And God gives them more until they hear 
the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. And what Romans 1 would tell us is that those religions that deny that Jesus is the Son of God, they are not attempts to run toward the one true God. They are actually attempts to run away, to construct a God of our own making in which we are allowed to deny the truth of God and live our own way. And yet to those who respond to what God has given, he willingly calls and leads them toward eternal life. If you have not yet heard the message from last year by my friend Celestin Musakura, who came from Rwanda, it's on our website. I'd encourage you to go find it because Celestin's story is a great illustration of what I'm talking about. He grew up in an idolatrous culture in which there were gods for every occasion and every thing, and yet he could not suppress that feeling in his heart and mind that there must be a God greater than all of these little gods who controls life and controls death and can lead us to know God for eternity. And he began to ask that he would, he began to ask this God who he didn't even know, help me know you. Until God led him to a missionary who shared him the good with him the good news of Jesus Christ because he responded to what God had provided. God brought him the gospel. And Jesus is making a claim to absolute exclusivity. He is the only way, but he offers so many alternatives, or so many, excuse me, so many opportunities for people to know him. Our world really struggles with the exclusivity of Jesus. Perhaps no public figure has influenced the religious mindset of our country more than Oprah Winfrey. And last fall, Oprah Winfrey uh, launched a short television series called Belief, in which she just examined the belief systems of different people all around the world. So she looked at Islam, she looked at Christianity and Judaism and a variety of other belief systems. And I ran across a review of her show in the Washington Post. And and the review said this, all around the world, people are discovering that God or the gods or the goddess or the spirit of awe is nearer than has often been taught and that the divine can be accessed by anyone, anywhere. In, any, in every faith tradition, in every corner of the globe, men and women are discovering that faith is an encounter of love and that human beings can trust themselves to find God and grace wherever the sacred might be discerned. And Jesus would say, you absolutely cannot trust yourself to find God because you'll get lost. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The only way to the Father is through him. And God makes every opportunity available for men and women to hear and respond to the gospel. But ultimately, belief in Jesus Christ is the only way. Now you can imagine, as Jesus was talking to the disciples and they heard this message, that it could have caused them a deeper sense of trouble. Because Jesus had just said, I am leaving and I'm leaving you here. And the reason I'm leaving you here is to be ambassadors of this message, of this good news. And yet the disciples were intimidated because they, like us, lived in a pluralistic culture. 
The Roman Empire was a very pluralistic culture. And in fact, what often got Christians in trouble was that in the Roman Empire, you could worship any god you wanted to worship as long as you also worshiped the emperor. And so when Christians said, no, Jesus is the only way to know God. Jesus is the only one we worship and we will not also worship the emperor or burn incense to him. That resulted in persecution from the powers that were. And so living in a pluralistic culture, they are troubled and they are intimidated. And so Jesus wants them to know that he has given them everything necessary to fulfill the task of sharing the gospel in a hostile and foreign world. And so in verses 12 through 18, Jesus will say this, that the Spirit travels with us as we proclaim the message of good news in Jesus Christ. The Spirit travels with us. Look with me at verses 12 to 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now go down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In other words, Jesus says, in this task you have been called to do, in a hostile foreign culture that does not accept the truth of God, in the midst of that task to proclaim the good news, I will be with you through the Holy Spirit who will dwell in and among God's people until Jesus returns. So that at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, you go make disciples, but just know I am with you. I will not leave you. I am always there to empower you to do my will, to empower you to do even greater works, Jesus said, than I have done and to teach you everything that I commanded so you can remember it and teach it. You are not alone. And just like the disciples, we have that fear and that feeling of being all alone in a pluralistic culture that does not believe in Jesus as the only way. And we have been called to this task to proclaim and live out the reality of the gospel. And it's intimidating. A number of years ago, I visited some of our missionaries in East Asia. And uh, it was my first trip to this particular country, and I did not know the language. I did not know the geography of our city. I did not know how to get around. If I wanted to, I I would not have been able to get a cab back to the hotel where we were staying. And so I was totally dependent upon the team that I was with. Talk about feeling like a small child. I could not go anywhere without them. One day we went to a restaurant while I was there, and as we were leaving the restaurant, I said to them, "Uh, really quickly, I need to run to the restroom before we go to our next stop. And so they all went outside. I went to the restroom, and while I was in there, they hatched a little plan. And that plan was that when I came out of the restaurant, they would all be gone. 
So I walked out of this restaurant in the middle of a city I was unfamiliar with, and I didn't know that they were all like hiding behind trash cans and other places within feet of me, watching me walk out. And the first thing I thought was, this has to be a joke. It's a joke. The second thing I thought was, what if it's not? And I'm stuck here forever, right? In a city where I don't speak the language. I don't know what to do. How will I get back to the hotel? I don't even know where I am. And I was terrified at the reality of being in a completely foreign place without the tools to get by. It's deeply unsettling. And often as believers in Jesus Christ, in a world that is generally hostile to the truth of Jesus, we have that sense of being deeply unsettled and alone. And so Jesus reassured the disciples, you are not alone. I won't leave you as orphans. The Spirit will be here in and among God's people until the day Jesus comes back. So that as we interact with family and friends and co-workers and those in our community who don't know Jesus, and as we endeavor to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, we don't go alone. We have the power through Jesus and the authority through Jesus and the ability through Jesus to do all he has asked us to do because the Spirit is with us and among us. It's interesting, as you read through the book of Acts, just not very long at all after Jesus spoke these words, after his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, all of a sudden you see these disciples. Y'all can just ignore the lights. I know that they're doing something crazy, but that's all right. I see these uh, disciples, you see these disciples, and they have a radical turnaround in the way that they interact with others. It's interesting here in John 14, they're confused, they're afraid, they're troubled. And Jesus says, don't worry, don't be troubled, take heart, right? All of a sudden in the book of Acts, you have Peter who here uh, is about to deny Jesus. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost in front of thousands of people risking his own neck and he proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ because all of a sudden now the Spirit of God is with him and the Spirit that Jesus had promised is with him. Now, this is what's interesting. As you move through the book of Acts and the Spirit empowers his people, there's a name given for Christianity throughout the book of Acts that is used several times in the book of Acts as they follow the Spirit of God to proclaim the good news. And that name, you know what that name is in the book of Acts for Christianity? The way. So as they follow the Spirit, they say, we are following the way. And they look back to John 14 and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they remember the truth of who he is. And that empowers them to proclaim the good news because they recognized this, that when we proclaim the good news, we don't do so to condemn those who do not believe, right? Jesus said in John 3, I did not come to condemn the world, but what? To save the world. See, everybody who doesn't know God is already condemned by sin and by disbelief. Proclaiming the gospel brings life and brings the opportunity to know God. Right? If, if you have kids, often you know that when you're crossing a street, you will grab their hand and help them across the street. Right? If you've got particularly a young boy between ages, say, three and six, you know that he probably doesn't like that, right? Because he takes that as a condemnation of his abilities 
to cross the street. He says, I can do it. I don't need you. But you still grab his hand and you bring him across the street. Why? Because you're not trying to condemn him. You're trying to keep him alive. And what the apostles recognize is that proclaiming the good news of Jesus is saying and speaking the only way to eternal life. Not out of condemnation, but out of God's love for the world. He has made a way in Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes this exclusive claim to say, I am the only way. But God is always calling and there is always room for all who will trust in Jesus. And he has sent his people to be the ambassadors of that good news. So as we come to terms with the reality of who Jesus is this morning and what he claimed to be, let me just ask a couple of questions for us. First of all, do you believe that Jesus is the way? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Maybe you have not yet even begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so you this morning, uh, like maybe these men and women on the video, you're coming to terms with who is Jesus. You say, that's something I need to think about. And it may be this morning is, is the opportunity where the Spirit is calling you to recognize that in Him alone, if you trust that He died for your sin and rose again, you can have eternal life. And God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved, as Paul wrote. And so this may be the morning God is calling you. And it may be that in this room you have trusted in Jesus, but sometimes you doubt, is Jesus really the only way? Will we acknowledge and submit to the reality that God has placed before us that in Jesus Christ there's a way to know him? All who believe in him have eternal life. And then second, will you proclaim that Jesus is the way? If we believe that Jesus is the only way, this alters the landscape of how we view our friends and our family, our coworkers, those around us who don't know Jesus. Because as C.S. Lewis said, uh, we don't know any ordinary people. We know either immortal splendors or eternal horrors. Every person is destined for an eternity with God through Jesus or an eternity apart from God. And we carry the message of life. And have the opportunity to proclaim that message with all that we come into contact with. With the promise that God's spirit is with us and among us until the day Jesus returns. Who are those men and women in our lives for whom we need to pray? And toward whom we need to share the good news. That God has made a way for us to be in his home through his only son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word and what it has to teach us this morning. I pray we would submit to what your word says, that you have given us one way to know you through Jesus. And I pray we would see that and rejoice in the grace you have given us. And then I pray that we would also accept the task that you've commissioned us to do, to preach the good news. I pray we would be men and women who go into our neighborhoods, into our city, and speak the gospel. Men and women who share the life that we have been given. Thank you for entrusting us with the good news. Thank you for giving us eternal life. And we thank you for your word and for this time. 
We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.